John Aberly. Uh, I'm getting that feedback again, man. Where's that coming from? I can, ah, I know where it's coming from. Hold on. There we go. I sound like myself now. <laughs> Did you hear that, Bill? Kind of a little bit of feedback. Yeah, yeah it, I didn't disconnect. I apologize. Well, again, welcome to Lifeline Edit. I'm your host, John Aberly. We're going to be doing part two today of uh, obviously part one of what we did last week, discussing mold and the dangers of it and how it's not really out there uh, enough where people know the damages that it can cause, causing themselves, to their families, to buildings, but really more to the human being than anything else. And that's what we're going to really tackle today. We're going to tackle what happens to the human body, how can it be fixed, and then we're going to talk about remediation and what can be done. So we're going to kind of tackle all of this, and we're bringing back, of course, uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker, one of the leading mold experts in the world. He has written the book, Surviving Mold, Life in the Era of Dangerous Buildings. Welcome back, doctor. Thank you. Well, good morning, and thank you again for the kind invitation. <laughs> That's okay. By the way, just to give you an update, uh, we were able to, or I was able to track the show this week a little bit, and it has exploded, as I expected, on the Internet, uh, on LinkedIn. Bill Young's been able to put it up there, who's going to be talking more remediation with us today. So I'm really happy with how this is going. But I want to start with this. Someone gets diagnosed with mold poisoning, if you want to call it that. What are the steps to help these people, doctor? Where do we go? Are you looking at supplements, medication? Are we looking at a combination of that? What has to be done other than getting the person out of that environment? Well, it's at the end of the day, that remains the most important question. I, I would uh, want to make sure, though, that your listeners were aware that this is not mold poisoning. Okay. This is not molds living inside people doing bad things. This is not an infectious disease. This is not an allergy. This is a <clears throat> predictable illness that can be identified with blood tests and a variety of neurotoxicological tests. And best of all, it can be identified with brain imaging studies called NeuroQuant. And finally, it can be identified with gene testing called genomics. Okay. So what we do to treat the illness is to identify what's wrong. It, it seems almost uh, something that people take for, for granted in thinking about medicine and saying, all right, I, I want to have some treatment. Uh, what, what, what do I do? Well, we define the physiology, and we define it without guessing. I can guarantee you that some of your listeners today are going to practitioners who have an opinion on what to do, but don't have data to back up what they're doing. And after the patient has spent thousands of dollars, there's going to be a question, where am I now? And unfortunately, they won't even know where they were when they started. So it sounds almost pedantic to say, define what's wrong, but that's what we do. And once you define what's wrong, and, and we have presented uh, in a peer-reviewed paper in 2013 the 12-step uh, protocol that I use, and on the Surviving Mold website, and, and thank you again for mentioning my book. I really appreciate that. No, okay. But on the Surviving Mold website, you will see essays on how to do what I do and how to do it better than what I do, written by physicians who have certified uh, in my protocol, so that... For the listener who wants a quick, easy answer, there it is. It's posted on the website. You're right. Removal from exposure or successful remediation is the first thing. Uh, I'm reminded of the guy who says, I'm, I'm being burned by a flamethrower. Well, <laughs> isn't the best idea to either turn off the flamethrower or move out of the way of the flames? And it, it sounds kind of silly, but that is important because this illness will give inflammation that is ongoing until one step after another, and there's a total of 12, uh, are, are performed. We don't use supplements very much at all. Okay. Diet has very little role at all. Uh, 
I, I usually suggest people uh, consider using the seafood diet. And they say, seafood? Yes, if I see food, I eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there are some special instances. There are people that can't tolerate gluten, and some people have dairy problems and corn problems, and, and those are subsets of what we do. But the real issue is that once the inflammatory process has started, there are medications currently licensed for use uh, in, in, in the U.S. and around the world that will block the abnormalities, but finally, at the end of the day, what we've got to do is to go back to the human genome and turn off the genes that are inappropriately activated and turn on the ones that are suppressed. Interesting. Now, I, I, what I'd like you to do, doctor, is step back for a moment with me here. And someone comes in, and I, I assume that you can probably look at them and see certain symptoms that are obvious to you that would lead you to believe that this could be a, a mold toxicity situation. But I'd like you to tell us about certain blood tests that would identify this. And I'd like you to explain to myself, to Bill, to the listeners, really how easy this is for your local primary doctor to run these tests if he or she understands what they're looking for. The tests that are used are all available from commercial labs for which insurances provide coverage. Now, there may be different policies in this era of Obamacare that you know, some things are excluded or not, but by and large, the listing of the labs, which is also, as you might guess, found on surviving mold under physician's order sheet section in laboratory and under diagnosis, you will see the labs there, their codes, specimen requirements, and all that. Probably the best way to think about how to approach the objective parameters, not the guesses, is to say, do I have immune response genes that will create increased what we call relative risk or susceptibility such that if I go into a water damage building, I'm more likely than not to get sick, but someone who doesn't have this, the same immune response genes won't get sick, and that is critical. Not everybody gets this. And, you know, when we talked a bit about hysteria in the first show, mm -hmm. I can remember being troubled for four years of the 10 people swimming in an area with a big hysteria bloom. Three got sick as a dog. Mm. But seven didn't. What were the individual factors? It wasn't age or gender or cigarettes or drug or alcohol or anything like that. It was what we call HLA, or the human leukocyte antigen or histocompatibility locus A, the HLA-DR, the immune response genes found on chromosome 6. And we know that there are 75% of people walking around that can go and, and swim in stachybitis and breathe it in all day long, and they'll say, yeah, it, it didn't taste very good, and I, I had a cough for about 20 minutes, but I'm fine. What's the matter with you? And the other guy will have exposure to five colonies of stachy, for example, and he'll remember about nothing. Well, so, let me ask this then. Uh, again, I'm trying to come from a layperson's perspective. I'm trying to come from my own personal perspective as well as if I had children who were exposed. And of course, as we said earlier, getting out of that situation where you're being exposed to is key. Once you've done that and it's been identified and you've started the proper protocol, what kind of time frame are we looking at where the human body will start repairing itself? And can there be long-term effects even though the body's be, been cleaned out. And I'm thinking more with children on that one, doctor. There's going to be a two-part question here. I'm thinking more on children there because of exposure, maybe problems with IQ, IQs dropped, learning disabilities. What are we looking at in, in, in those situations? Well, I, I think there's at least four questions in what you asked. <laughs> I think there is two. I apologize. <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, I would have fun torturing defense attorneys in deposition who tried to ask that question. But, <laughs> but, but they would have fun trying to torture me, too. True. So they, there you go. The, the approach in timing of illness, in how long it's going to take to get better, depends on what's wrong. I mentioned genetic susceptibility. Mm -hmm. That susceptibility will result in lack of regulation of gene activity, that's number one, 
lack of regulation of inflammation, that's number two, and then hormonal problems and autoimmune problems that follow routinely, that's number three. So when we look at the illness, is there a difference in what children have compared to adults? Actually, very little. Children, in fact, have worse problem with the mean levels of these inflammatory parameters being higher than adults, but they get better quicker. Mm. So the duration of illness is important, but then the hormonal problems are critical. For example, in people with lack of regulation of inflammation due to lack of two hormones, the melanocyte-stimulating hormone and vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, and, and these are all discussed on the website, so if I talk too fast, no, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's readily available. But specifically, the androgens, so in male and female sex hormones, are affected more in adults than children. The ACTH and cortisol, the adrenal, pituitary, and hypothalamic axis is affected more in adults than in children. And then most importantly, the antidiuretic hormone in, in osmolality, or salt and water in the blood, is affected more in adults than in children. So kids don't get a buy or a pass on these abnormalities, but even though they're sicker at presentation, they get better quicker. Now, the, the proviso that we go back to is I mentioned to you NeuroQuant. Mm -hmm. NeuroQuant is a software program that will identify volume changes in the brain that reflect what inflammatory markers do to the protective blood-brain barrier. One of the changes is increased fluid coming out of blood into structures in the front part of the brain and some of the gray matter. Those structures, when they're full of fluid, don't work right. So when you say, are there learning disability and learning disorders? Yes. Are there executive cognitive functions? Yes. Do children lose math first compared to, say, reading and comprehension? Yes. So if we wonder, how are we going to compete with some of the uh, Asian countries in, in, in brains and science and math? Let's not poison with inflammation brains of our kids, all right? Let's just start with some little things. Let's make our schools safe and what have you. But that inflammation can be defined now with an objective parameter. What children don't get very often is a more devastating brain injury to the gray matter nucleus called the caudate. A lot of people haven't heard of the caudate nucleus and haven't heard of putamen and amygdala either, but they're sitting down by the thalamus, kind of between the front part of the brain and in the back uh, and at the base of the brain, and they have a huge role in integrating information that runs in pathways from the front to the back of the brain. So when we find lack of substance, which we do frequently in mold patients, but not anybody else, in the caudate nucleus, there is going to have to be correction of gray matter. And I'm here to tell you, looking carefully at the world's literature, nobody has published a series of what we're doing, which is to show correction of isolated, not, not many gray matter, but isolated gray matter injury and atrophy. So a long answer. Once again, I apologize for being wordy this morning. I've had my coffee. <laughs> But basically, if, if we are looking at learning disability or looking at cognitive issues... Well, doctor, hold on one second. I want to hold you. i got to take my first break, and then I want to come back, and we're going to stay on this topic for a little bit, and then we're going to turn to some of the remediation aspects of it, what we can actually do. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my special guest is Dr. Richie Shoemaker and Bill Young, remediation expert here at Exton PA. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Dr. Richie Shoemaker. He has written the book, Life in the Era of Dangerous... I'm sorry, take that back. He has written the book, Surviving Mold, Life in the Era of Dangerous Buildings. Doctor, real quick, please give us your website as well. It's www.survivingmold.com. Okay. Doctor, please finish up your last statement. We were talking about... Uh, how it affects the brain, have learning disabilities in children and so forth. If we look at executive cognitive 
function. Recent memory, ability to concentrate, ability to find words in conversation, uh, ability to remember what you just read, confusion, disorientation, all of these factors that we take for granted are contributed to particular brain pathways that can and are affected by inflammation that injures the blood-brain barrier that contributes to loss of brain substance in particular areas or enlargement of particular structures with additional fluid. Either way, the inflammation-induced injury, and this is why I don't want you to call it mode poisoning, gotcha. this, this, this is inflammation, will continue as long as the environmental conditions that let these organisms that make us sick, for which we have too much inflammation, continue to live and to present compounds that, that we recognize as foreign. So the brain injury, working backwards to inflammation, working backwards, exposure, it all can be identified sequentially and treatment protocols can correct these abnormalities provided you define them. That's the key to vision, identifying it, then getting yourself away from it, and then being able to attack it so you can start to eradicate it from your from your body. Now, Bill, I'm going to go to you now. Bill Young, who is part of Moldenmore here in Exton, Pennsylvania. Bill does mold remediation. Bill, you had a question on this, going to the doctor on the health aspect. Yeah, actually, I'm here sort of as the remediation person, but I, as I'm listening to what the doctor's saying, I have all these questions that pop into my head. And one of the things that I do when I walk in to assess a location is I do ask questions about any symptoms anybody might be experiencing to get a, a little bit of a gauge of what's going on. And my question, doctor, is this, and you may, we may not have enough time for you to be able to answer this. I don't know. Um, we could always but, do a part three. Don't, yeah. don't feel like we're limited here. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, but chronic exposure versus acute exposure. Um, is there a possibility that while you've identified about 25% of the population that it seems to be genetically predisposed, is it possible that chronic exposure signals genes to turn on or turn off and as a result of that you actually develop the inflammatory illnesses that you're talking about? You know, John, Bill just said in one sentence what I've taken five minutes to try to say. <laughs> Bill, you're a genius. <laughs> you know, the, Jerry Clower, my favorite comedian, used to say his pet peeve was people taking things that are complicated uh, and then or people taking things that are simple and making them complicated. I can't even do the joke right this morning. <laughs> but, That's but that the, coffee. Yeah, 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 I tell you what. <laughs> but, Bill, you understand exactly why there are additional pathways of abnormalities that develop over time. And gene activation does not happen overnight, at least doesn't stay activated overnight uh, with a single exposure, but over time this bombardment of our DNA and some of the regulatory genes called long non-coding RNA, a lot of people haven't heard of those, but they're about at least half of our DNA makeup. Those regulatory aspects, when they start to leave, contribute to an illness that will never be healed just by removal, exposure. My first step is to use toxin binders like cholestyramine or Wellcall. And for people with longer-standing gene activation, that's a necessary and mandatory first step, but it's not going to take care of all the rest of them that follow it. But with, if all CIH types knew what you knew, Bill, we would have remediation standards far more stringent than what we have currently. Well, let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in there real quick because this is, again, the layperson coming here. What are we looking at? Maybe Bill can help with this. I'm pretty sure you can. But, Doc, let me throw it at you first. You're the one that's going to Capitol Hill on several occasions. You're one of the people that's battling to get this out. We compared it uh, last week to when people were being told uh, about the poisoning of having lead in lead-based paint. I remember the commercials. I remember the baby. Don't you? The whole nine yards. We're not seeing this on the mold issue here, and I don't understand why. The CDC has said it's a problem. The World Health Organization has said it's a problem. You're an expert in the field. You meet with other experts. What is the problem with the politicians? Are we talking, is it the developers, the contractors that seem to have 
what's the word I'm looking for? Well, they've got great PR, they've got great publicity, they've got uh, everything they need. Is that what we're looking at, the political ex part of this here? And I'll throw it to the doctor first, and I know Bill will pick up on it. Go ahead, doctor. I usually get in trouble when I try to answer that question. <laughs> I, I, I am somewhat of a cynic about, about human motivations. Um, here, I think we cannot underestimate uh, the role of, of money. If uh, you and I went to the ABC studio in New York City and found mold in that ABC studio, do you think the network would let us announce that people involved had cognitive issues? Do you think they would advertise that the folks there were too tired to do their homework and would not be prepared? Do you think the public would welcome knowing that politicians in the U.S. House of Representative buildings, the Rayburn building, that work in the basement and the sub-basement, were working in moldy environments all the time? Would, would that contribute to healing some of the political arguments that we have? Uh, do you think it would be a good idea if we announced that military barracks uh, around the country are being maintained in, in a less than aggressive method to protect our servicemen and their families. Would that be a good announcement when we're going to deploy and send people over to help fight the Ebola virus or go to Afghanistan or go to some place to fight ISIS or ISIL, whatever it's called? The issues that we go back to have to do with someone who's a developer and has got 25 units uh, there uh, across the, the Delaware River in New Jersey that are all of, uh, of the fake stucco, and he forgot to put the seals in uh, around the windows. Is the developer selling these million-dollar uh, homes going to readily admit that he's created a health hazard for every family that buys one of these? What will happen to his income if he now gets sued for each one of these 25 different homes, or maybe just 25% just of them? You know, when people say that mold is the next asbestos, as far as litigation, there has been a massive uh, response by uh, primarily the insurance industry to do what they can to mitigate their losses. And we still have got to deal with the fact that as soon as you see a school that's got a flat roof with tar and chip on it that hasn't been redone for four or five years, uh, the likelihood there's going to be a leak in that school is pretty high. So how do we pay to clean up all of the environmental conditions that contribute to making people sick? If we go by the rule of majority, only 25% of people are likely to be ill, and 75% are going to be fine. 75% says don't spend the money in the school, 25% say do. Now that's fascinating me on the political level, and we can go round and round about that because that drives me absolutely crazy. I'll throw it to Bill, because I know Bill does home inspections, and I believe, Bill, you're doing older homes prior to sale or even after sale, and you're also involved in the newer homes that are coming online with some of the larger developers around the area. And you run into this, don't you? You run into where you've identified a problem, and there's some blowback to it. Yeah, I think there's a couple of aspects to this. You, your initial question was, why aren't the politicians paying attention to this? And I think part of it goes back to what Dr. Shoemaker said earlier about one, what was it, I think, one out of seven people, uh, seven of them won't have a reaction to the mold, that one will. The seven are looking at them like it's all in your head. Um, I think part of it is that many of the people who are making those decisions don't experience it either themselves or within their family and therefore don't see the the ramifications of that exposure. The other part is there is no limit to the irrational behavior of humans. And uh, when, money talks. when money comes into the picture, that becomes a major motivating factor, especially when you look at what we basically worship in our society, which is money. Um, and I was in a house uh, just yesterday, and Dr. Schumacher actually referred somebody to your website yesterday because and this is where my question of chronic versus uh, acute exposure came from. It's a relatively new house, only a few years old. Stucco failure, um, 
lack of um, appropriate um, measures around the windows, so you had window failures, all of those things. And as a result of those chronic exposures, uh, two members of the family I know are ill uh, based on what the client was describing, and it may actually be affecting other people and they're just not aware of it at this point. Uh, so I think those pl those are all factors that play into it. And this is a high-end home, correct? This is a high-end home. This, this was million-dollar-plus. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, that individual is coming to you to prove her point, what the situation is. It, it, it blows my mind that we're at this point where people, your developer, your construction person, whatever you're doing, and you don't take responsibility for this, I don't get it because it can be cleaned up. And when we come back from the, our next break here, we're going to kind of touch on that a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk. We're going to stay with houses because that's kind of what people are involved with. You know, they have, usually yeah. have their homes. We're going to kind of stay in that direction. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my two guests are Dr. Richie Shoemaker and Bill Young from Moldenmore. We'll be right back. Edit. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Dr. Richie Shoemaker. He has written the book, Surviving Mold, Life in the Era of Dangerous Buildings. Doctor, again, please give us your website. www.survivingmold, M-O-L-D is that how to pronounce it, dot com. Bill Young from Mold and More Remediation. Bill, I owe you a plug here, so go ahead and tell us what uh, website we can find you on. Yeah, it's uh, www.moldandmoredecon.com. That's M-O-L-D, and as in Nancy, M-O-R-E-D-E-C-O-N.com. So we're talking here about homes. I want to kind of stay with that for a second, because that is the biggest purchase most individuals will ever make is their home. And, Bill, I wanted to ask you first on this one. Older homes or newer homes, which is the bigger problem? Oh, it's, it's both. Oh, okay, <laughs> both so are potential okay, problems. so they're neck and neck. Right. Uh, sometimes what we get in, and I think I mentioned this in the last program, we've been in some properties where they were built in the 1920s, 1930s, uh, and a portion of the home is torn down. They leave the flooring in there. They leave the joists in place and then add to that foundation, and you end up with new lumber in a new portion of the foundation, the old lumber, which was extremely dry, is relatively resistant to mold growth, where the new lumber, because it's still fairly moist and now in a below-grade location, ends up with mold growth visible on it. Uh, and then we have the problems that, that go along with that. So it doesn't really matter. It's really all about the moisture. And that's why water-damaged buildings is what Dr. Shoemaker's talking about. Water is the key. Yeah, water is definitely the key. And this is where I want to go now. As a homeowner, uh, and the man cave is becoming the big thing. And I was on the cutting edge of that 15, 16 years ago. My basement's 90% finished. Uh, I told you the story. I had a flood several years back. I don't live in a floodplain, just reconfiguration of water somehow. What can a homeowner do in particular? It sounds like the basement, the finished basement, can be a problem. What can a homeowner do to make sure... They're not having mold issues. I mean, I know I've made the mistake. I have carpet down there. That's something I shouldn't have done, correct? Correct. Thank you. <laughs> I knew, found that out recently, doctor. Thanks. But what can I do? I'm getting my home built uh, right now. Let's say I'm getting a home built, million-dollar home. I'm getting my basement finished. What should I be telling the builder that I need done to make sure this doesn't happen to me? first thing I'd do is not finish the basement right away. You would wait till the house settles? Wait until you know what's going on okay. and what, where the water might be coming from because uh, very often now uh, people are using their basements as additional living space and they're having the home built and having the basement finished. They have no idea what's going to happen with that foundation. When they dig a hole to build your basement or put your basement in, they're disturbing all the soil that to date has been moving the water in the right direction. You loosen that up, and then when they backfill after they've finished, that's now loose soil. All the moisture that comes against that has a much greater opportunity to push through. And even poured concrete foundations 
you're getting some moisture infiltration through that. You can see it sometimes on the walls. You can yeah. see if, if the water is built up against the foundation of the house, you can see little cracks will start to form. You'll see cracks, you'll see efflorescence, what looks like mold growth, but it's not. It's actually um, minerals, minerals that are getting pushed through by the hydrostatic pressure. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you want to take a look at where that is. And other, the other thing that people need to be aware of is don't put cardboard boxes on your, on your basement floor. Uh, you put cardboard on that concrete floor, that floor never really dries. There's always some moisture in it. And it's going to pull moisture up from underneath. We've run into situations where we're getting really high stachybotrys counts and we can't see where it's coming from. And then what we find out is as we investigate a little further, it's the cardboard boxes they've got stored in the back corner of the basement. Interesting. And the mold is growing on the bottom of the box. You can't see it, but now it's gone aerosol. So if I went, now I, I think I asked this, and I don't know if the doctor sanctions anything uh, in particular, but I'm going to ask, and I'll throw it to both of you, is there, a, you know, can the average homeowner go to Home Depot and get a test done, just like they were with radon? Or is this really beyond the scope of a homeowner where an expert such as yourself, Bill, has to be called in to really look at it? You really want somebody to come in and look at it, especially if people are presenting health symptoms. And that's usually what draws people's attention to it is all of a sudden the kids are having more frequent colds or they're having sinus infections repeatedly and all of those things. Um, it's those kinds of issues that bring us in. Uh, the Home Depot tests, and I'm, I don't want to trash Home yeah. Depot's tests or yeah. anybody else's tests, but they're not really giving you a clear picture of what's going on in the environment. It requires but they might kickstart the, they might they might kick their investigation. investigation. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Now, Doctor, I'm going to throw this one at you concerning buildings. Uh, when we first spoke back about a month ago, uh, you kind of blew out of the water for me something I thought was true for many years, that when we started to make new buildings in the 70s and after that, after we had the oil embargo and the energy crisis, we were making our buildings airtight. Is that a cause for mold? Have the newer buildings become an issue? I um, have to tell you that I think that idea is part of the smokescreen that was put forth primarily from construction uh, interests and insurance interests. Because the real issue in, in construction is that we're not worried so much about how tight the building is. We're worrying about what loosenings there are in what's called the building envelope. If you let water into an environment that stays, say, between 62 and 75 degrees year-round, 24-7, there will be a unique ecological environment that is going to be found there. And depending on how much water is freely available, called water saturation, or AW, you will find organisms growing according to the availability of food sources and moisture in that environment. Now, the scary thing to further undermine the idea that uh, tight houses are the problem has to do with the effect of some of the chemicals that we have used to get rid of fungi that have created mutations in fungi. The mutations in fungi are ones that, you know, we can almost identify when was there resistance developing to fungicides in, in farm crops but we also can look at when was the structure of compounds made by fungi altered by the mutant daughters that grew out of the environment of fungicides. And when we started adding fungicides into paints in the late 1960s and 1970, Pittsburgh Plain Glass was widely using several, uh, we created an environment for these mutant organisms to grow that made compounds that activated inflammatory responses that had a structure that was different that enabled that activation to take place. When I went into old buildings in Scotland with dank basements that haven't been changed for years uh, and with no medication and there with my own susceptibilities, I didn't get sick. 
it was not until newer building materials were brought in right. with the resistant fungi that we got sick. Did the same thing in the Galapagos, where no fungicides have been used. Here we had buildings with plenty of mold growth, but they were growing organisms that were not the mutated ones, and they didn't activate my inflammatory responses. It's fascinating to, to speculate. The point is nobody did the testing, but we do know, and this is the chapter in, in Surviving Mold, of the organisms now that create havoc with human innate immune responses, almost all of them have the beta tubulin one gene marker for the mutated fungus. So there we go. We, we have been able to live as human beings for eons in conjunction with mold. We get to a modern era. We introduce what we think is a better way, or at least a less expensive way, and those chemicals that are being used within the home because of home building interact with the mold, and then we have a more toxic situation than we would have had in the 1500s, yeah, which I'm, is fascinating guessing, to me. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor, I'm guessing that actually what you have is, is not just the fungicides and the, the change in the mold there, but the fact that people are still also being exposed to those hormone disruptors and the other chemicals at the same time that they're being exposed to these mutated molds. Um, it's kind of a microcosm of the macrocosm when you think about what we're doing to our environment in general. And is, is what we're seeing simply the, um, the isolation of a particular, I'll use the word pathogen um, to describe it, the particular pathogen in a particular environment, and yet we may be doing this uh, collectively throughout the world. We can take what you just said and then try to go to 30,000 feet with the view. If our environment is one in which there are 890 chemicals found in cord blood of newborns, I think Bill Moyers did a TV special showing that number, uh, what, what can we do about those chemicals now? Well, the answer is for not much money, we can improve our environment so we don't give known disease producers a chance to, to hurt us. If bisphenol A is a hormone disruptor that uh, is in the, uh, the plastic Coca-Cola bottle or whatever soft drink bottle, or if it's in uh, the, the Playtex nursing bottle that moms are, are using when they are no longer are breastfeeding, I don't know how much we can do to change that. Uh, I'm not going to count on government regulations to, to lead us out of the darkness. But I go back to the basics about what, what I do, and that is to look at moisture in, in buildings, chemicals that off-gas in buildings. How much do we really need? How much do we, are we just asking for trouble uh, with, with all these different things? Uh, the fact that one in four, not one in seven, but one in four people are, are statistically at risk for this illness says we can't afford to make assumptions and act on the assumptions about building materials. You know, we had drywall problems with mold growth, and what happened? We started importing drywall from foreign countries that was full of hydrogen sulfide. You know, what, where, where, where is the common sense here? Where is Jerry Clower's keep it simple uh, approach? Well, again, it comes down to money, and that is the root of everything that goes on. You have to you have to ask people, hey, if you're a developer and you're getting your cut is, uh, I don't know, we'll say of a million-dollar home, half a million, whatever you want to look at, do I really want to give away part of my profit to go after fixing something that really can't be seen for the most part unless it's going out of control? Do I want to put myself out there legally, like you said earlier, Bill? There's a lot of questions. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back for the final segment. And I got a great question for you, Bill, because we've been kicking this around for a while. You're listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my special guest is Dr. Richie Shoemaker. We are talking mold. Be right back.
Welcome back to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Aberly. We're going to wind up the show. This is the final segment. My guest today is Dr. Richie Shoemaker. He has written the book, Surviving Mold, Life in the Era of Dangerous Buildings. Dr. Shoemaker, again, your website, please. www.survivingmold.com Bill Young from Mold and More Remediation Expert. Bill, your website, please. It's moldandmoredecon.com. That's www.moldandmoredecon.com. Now, Bill, I want to throw this one to you. Uh, houses being built, a lot of newer homes. I think some older homes had as well. And we're in no way trashing or picking on any home that would you have... Uh, I just lost my train of thought there. Any home that would have uh, stucco added to it. But there are some problems that can occur with stucco if it's not put on correctly. And what are we looking at? Is it is the, the moisture gets behind the stucco, allows the mold to grow, and then it's kind of kind of pushed up against the house itself, and then the spores can kind of work their way in? Pretty much. There you go. <laughs> Damn, I'm good. Yeah, pretty much. Um, stucco, like any exterior cladding, seals off that, that building envelope. And the idea is to keep the weather outside, the water in particular outside. And then the insulating quality inside is, is safe and, and livable. Um, usually what we find, and, and I'm not a stucco expert, so mm -hmm. I don't want to step out too far on a yeah. limb here, but uh, we do have stucco experts that we work with, okay. and, and if the question comes up, I bring them in because I want to know exactly what's going on in terms of moisture load. Uh, but usually what we find is that either the window flashings have failed, the windows are not installed correctly, uh, they forget to put a weep screen behind the stucco so that it can't get rid of the moisture that develops behind the stucco. Uh, there's all kinds of factors. We ran into a house a few years ago. The problem was not the exterior cladding. Okay. It was the fact that they used vinyl wallpaper on an inside south-facing wall. And because of temperature differentials, they ended up with condensation building up inside there and had a huge mold issue that they couldn't see. Uh, because of that. So there's, there's, you have to pay attention to what's going on in your environment. And for most of us, our day is so busy, all we want to do is come home, take our shoes off, kick back, and relax. We don't want to have to sit there and monitor our relative humidities and, and well, I was all of those well, things. Well, that's the next one then. Again, as a homeowner, and when after my basement flooded and I cleaned it out, ripped everything out, uh, I had to get a French drain put in the whole nine yards here. Um, I was approached quite aggressively by the people who did my sub pump and the drain and everything about getting two dehumidifiers. I mean, big suckers in the basement. Is a dehumidifier something that's going to be helpful there? Is it going to give me enough protection to take the moisture out of the air? Is it something that I want if I'm a homeowner? Generally, we recommend dehumidification okay. in anything that's below grade, um, in particular crawl spaces, which often get ignored. Gotcha. Uh, mainly because people don't go in their crawl space very often. They walk in their basement, but they don't go in the crawl space. Uh, but you do want to take a look at that. Um, one of the other things that has come up, and I'm sure Dr. Shoemaker's run into this on occasion, where uh, certain jurisdictions, their code requires that crawl spaces be ventilated. Well, you're talking about the area closest to the grass and when you walk out on the grass on a summer morning it's wet yeah that means you're pumping the most moist air into that crawl space which has limited ventilation and then you're expecting air buoyancy to push that moisture back out it's not going to happen man this is science class like 10th grade or something <laughs> yeah and a lot so. of people don't understand that because we're counting on the experts the developers, the construction workers, people like yourself, people like uh, Dr. Shoemaker. Now, Dr. Shoemaker, I want to throw this back to you now. Um, you're phasing out your practice, so to speak, and you're getting into a new venture where you're going to be working closely. I think you have a partner on this, if I'm correct, and you're going to start training and certifying uh, developers, construction people, uh, people along those lines. That's Is that correct? Yes, uh, Michael Pinto has had the idea that what is the standard approach to remediating homes might be fine for the 75% of people who aren't going to get sick from water damaged environments, but we want to make sure that 
the other 25% of patients are ones that are safe from particulates in the air. It needs to be emphasized that once there is a problem with uh, water intrusion and microbial growth, and it's way more than just mold as we talked about before, there is going to be distribution of particulates which don't have to be intact living organisms, and 99% of them are fragments of living organisms, uh, and they're, they're dead, but they're still there. Those compounds are found throughout the home. So if all we do is go in and remediate, say, the living room around the, the chimney that leaked because it was never flashed right in the first place at the top of the roof, what are we going to do about the rest of the house? And then we need to look at people with some of the most extreme genetic susceptibility, your classic eggshell plaintiff, so to speak. And the particulates there are not ones that are intact spores. They're smaller than the vast majority of fragments of spores and fragments of, of cell walls and that kind of things. And they are just floating around in, in, in Brownian motion, so to speak. And people like Greg Weatherman have primarily uh, developed some techniques that will remove these particulates that are going to go right through a HEPA filter, a 0.3 micron filter, and find ways to remove them from the air and then enable cleaning to take place. I know Bill has some uh, interesting products that, that uh, are, are ones that are worth listening about as well. But by having contractors certify that they not only do the standard things according to codes, but they also do the more uh, particular kind of cleaning and create kind of computer clean rooms, so to speak, that will enable them, I think, to do a better job that are for people that are known to be sick and known to be sick end. And we can talk about philosophy again just for a minute. Yeah. Should we be remediating for all people, including the 25% that are very susceptible, or should we be cleaning just for the 75% that aren't going to get sick anyhow? I think we should be doing it for the good of the, of the cause. I mean... It, it, What's so bad about doing it right to make sure all people? To me personally, I think one in four people is a pretty high number of people that are being exposed to something that if it's not going to kill them, it's going to take them on a pretty bad path until it's fixed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things out there. If it was a one in four, people would be freaking out about it. And I think, again, to me, that's a high number. We're not talking about 2%. If one in four people in the U.S. got Ebola virus, would there be a national problem? Oh, God, without a doubt, don't you think? <laughs> if one in four people had a, an illness that created an Alzheimer's-like picture at age 40, would there be a problem? There would be a congressional hearing on it, and there would be experts called in. CNN and every other channel would be there, and there'd be a public outcry. Yes, one there's things. One in four yes. of our experts were brain damaged to begin with because we need to leave them. <laughs> and the sad, sad part is he's being serious, which but is interesting. Take it, take it one, one step further. If Greg Weatherman of Aerobiological and Bill Young of Mold and More have products that will remove particulates less than 0.3 microns, not only from the air and from dust, but present a method to remove them from the building, would we want our buildings to be cleaned that way? Would we think twice about commissioning someone to clean the interior of our car if we didn't know how to do it? I'm all for it. And when you talk about kids, children, as just being uh, an upward mobile society, we should be doing anything and everything we can. Unfortunately, as we touched on before, socioeconomic situations, you get an inner city school, they're not gonna get the greatest care as a suburban school would. I mean, Bill, you see that. You know when you have to go into a place, what the economics are, how much these places can afford. Well, that's actually one of my concerns. And, and Greg Weatherman brought this up and, and uh, LinkedIn discussion that we were participating in, uh, how much would we see a difference in crime rates 
uh, and other behavioral issues if people in inner cities weren't living in water-damaged buildings and going to water-damaged schools. Uh, it just really economically in the long run makes sense to take care of these issues. Economically in the short run, it doesn't. Well, that's the problem. We look at everything in the short term where we should look at certain things in the long term especially when it comes to our kids yeah because they you know it's 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 lip service and we say it all the time but it is true they are the future doctor with your new venture i'm curious with your business plan how do you see this working you expect to have uh different con uh, contractors developers whomever else come down to a facility you're going to have in the maryland area and you will train them for a period of a couple weeks or whatever the idea is that the protocols are going to be written down and there will be a kind of a, a spiral-bound notebook of criteria that people will be expected to know and to put into practice. There will be on-site inspection by uh, contractors who have certified of contractors who want to be certified and there will be recertification each year so that it's like continuing education for a physician. If new medical knowledge is, is doubling every two years, it used to be five years, now it's two, how quickly is the new knowledge uh, doubling in the field of uh, indoor hygiene? So we, we do need to have a mechanism to look at these issues uh, comprehensively at day one, but then revisit them at day 366 and, and 733. Doctor, when do you expect to begin your uh, certification classes? Probably in a week. In a week. Oh. It's 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 quick. I want to go back to the, the children just, just for a second. And we got about a minute and a half, doctor, so go ahead. 20 seconds. Okay. Stunning, earth-shattering news from the chronic fatigue world about seven years ago. A well-funded researcher from Chicago announced the, the finding that chronic fatigue syndrome in children was vastly prevalent in inner-city Chicago. I believe that. And, and Bill made a great point that you can probably point to uh, learning disabilities, behavioral issues. If you break it down, how mold and other things are affecting the brain development, uh, you can go back, and a real quick one here, go back to the 80s where crack, parents were having children, they've done crack, and the children were coming out with deformities and so forth. So I think as a society, again, we have to look at everything. And you give me a one in four number, because here's a key, I'll tell you something. I did a show on child sexual abuse a couple years ago. One in four young girls before the age of 18 is, is sexually abused. That number is unacceptable to me. Because that's like, I mean, any number there would be unacceptable. But one in four, totally unacceptable. Same thing with this issue with mold. Gentlemen, we're going to finish up the show here, and I appreciate you both being on. Uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker, real quick, please give us your website again www.survivingmold.com Bill Young went website www.mold and is in Nancy M-R-E-D-E-C-O-N.com Great gentlemen, I appreciate it. You have been listening to Life Unedited. I am your host, John Aberly. I'll be back next week.